It is a great day for talk radio every Friday at this time. Sometimes it's Thursdays in the summer, but Conrad Black joins us, noted author, commentator, and historian. We're just talking about that free speech edict from the Ford government. Curious to find out how Conrad feels about it. Good afternoon, Conrad. Good afternoon to you, John. You know, uh, we were just discussing this with the callers. You know, Doug Ford yesterday announcing that schools, this is post-secondary universities and colleges that failed to maintain freedom of speech protections uh, are going to face reductions from their operating grant funding proportional to the severity of noncompliance. In other words, uh, you know, they want to protect free speech on campuses, and sometimes it's been very selective as to what the administrators will allow. You think Ford's in the right direction on this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the manner in which these places, which are supposed to be, uh, and by this I don't mean disorderly behavior during lectures, but are supposed to be centers of uh, free thought and freedom of expression and the uh, incentivization of imaginative and independent thinking, as long as it's not uncivilized or sociopathic, are, are, are being strangled by political correctness. And I think, I think the premier's absolutely right. Well, all right. Some uh, critics have said, well, this is best left up to the administration because, you know... The administrations have failed. The administrations, in my opinion, do nothing but roll over like poodles whenever there's student radicals around, whether they're in in, uh, secondary school or university. And and, uh, the administrations having failed, they can't be trusted. You know, further to that point, when we've got the people who are uh, the malcontents or uh, they're discontent with a policy, uh, we can see they put up the hue and the cry and it carries the day. The Kinder Morgan example is the one most readily available. Now, projects in the national interest, I was thinking about things like the Transcontinental Railway that, uh, you know, uh, Johnny McDonald was responsible for, the St. Lawrence Seaway. I doubt they get built today. How do you feel? Uh, I think, again, you're absolutely right, but uh, this is a... a corrigible situation. I mean, the fact is it can be put right. But what we have to do is establish uh, a modern variation, a post-charter variation of the High Court of Parliament. I mean, the danger in, in the Charter of Rights is, is not in the proliferation of rights of citizens, which were the guarantee of which was, was, was the chief motivation for Pierre Trudeau, uh, and in doing so to uh, to outmaneuver the separatists in Quebec who claimed that they had to secede in order to get any rights in Quebec, which was, of course, nonsense and seemed to be so by most Quebecers. Uh, but, the, but the danger is that now we have every judge uh, in Canada, especially in relatively higher courts, um, charging off on a white stallion supporting uh, any cause that he wants, regardless of what the legislation says, it's subject to total reinterpretation. And uh, we're going to get utter pandemonium and whimsical, capricious jurisprudence. I mean, the law will be whatever some judge says, and maybe if he had a a bad night the night before. It's opposite to what it would have been if he'd if he'd won the lottery. I mean, we the law has to be made by legislators and interpreted by judges, not remade by judges. And and that's what we're getting now. And the indulgence has been granted to the native people uh, for all for whom we all have a concern and we all want to do right by them. And we I think we all recognize that our policy with the native people has had uh, a, a lot of lack of success, and, and it's a very complicated issue, and we all want to address it. But the way to address it is not caving every time um, any, any Native leader says that there's been inadequate consultation or sacred rights of the Native people are being violated. 
uh, the, to me, the prime example of that was that Tunaxa affair, where someone was trying to build a ski area in the Kootenays in British Columbia, and which was going to employ every member of this band, every adult member. And they negotiated for 25 years, and they still had to go to the Supreme Court of Canada to get it passed. And, and uh, this is just nonsense. The judgment's nonsense, but it's up to the prime minister to put it right, and not by just allowing the natives to push on an open door until it comes off its hinges, and that's what we have now. Was that the same story where, I guess, uh, the uh, nation there uh, felt that somehow the bear spirit, the great you bear spirit... It. The grizzly bear's spirit was going to be banished by a ski slope on one part of the mountain, and that would violate the religious rights, and in addition, the constitutional obligation to negotiate had not been satisfied after 25 years of intensive negotiation. It sounds to me sometimes like it's Gulliver being tied down by the Lilliputians here, and uh, we're not going anywhere, which has a serious consequence because uh, there are many now who feel these are venture capitalists and uh, people offshore, that Canada is no longer open for business. You think that this maybe begets a national crisis? Um, it could do if nothing is done about it. I, I, I think everyone recognizes that in most respects, Canada is a rich country. It's a fair country. The the uh, due process in this country in industrial disputes and so on is, is compared to most countries, quite good and reliable. Uh, and, and so it's got a lot going for it. But but things are out of kilter. And, and uh, unfortunately, for the best of motives, we have allowed radicals in the native movement to represent John A. Macdonald, whom you mentioned was the founder of the country and a great statesman. And we've discussed this in previous Fridays. That they try, they've got a way of representing him as a virtual Hitler, which is an outrage. And, and, um, and they have... Uh, uh, they have managed to persuade a certain body of media and academic and judicial opinion that the arrival of the Europeans in what is now Canada w- was practically morally indistinguishable from the German invasion of Poland, uh, whose anniversary comes up tomorrow in 1939. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is nonsense. They were explorers who arrived in a completely underpopulated and almost unpopulated place. Again with Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian. You know, you did mention a few moments ago how uh, it seems judges are superseding the legislative branch when it comes to making the call. That was the Kinder Morgan situation. Closer to home here was city council. Uh, They have taken the province to court over this Bill 5 because Doug Ford's determined he's going to cut council from 47 down to uh, 25. Do you think that should be the purview of the legislative body, include, meaning Doug Ford, rather than taking it into a court here, the Superior Court in the province? Yeah, the, the British North America Act and the succeeding statute, the Constitution Act, leave ultimate authority over municipal affairs to the provincial government, that is to say the legislature and the, and the government supported by a majority in the legislature, and uh, the premier is acting within his rights. On that issue, personally, I think, uh, uh, while Toronto is a large city, 25 uh, councillors is quite enough. What I would say is that um, I think you could stand to have some city-wide councillors, councillors at large, to deal with metropolitan-wide issues like mass transit and so on. I, I think it's it's hard to ask... Um, each councillor for for his ward or her ward to you know to have an eye to the whole picture and the best interests for the entire metropolitan area in issues that involve the whole metropolitan area. So I I, I would have no objection to some of them being either uh, 
contesting successfully election as citywide councillors or or being elevated to a kind of executive committee of citywide councillors because somebody's apart from just the mayor has got to see the whole city I think and still with the messy situations, this NAFTA thing, apparently they've blown through the Friday deadline imposed by Donald Trump, whether it was real or not. Uh, the question becomes now, uh, there has been this leaked report that uh, Trump, you know, uh, was saying Canada is going to have to play by whatever rules he sets out or, uh, you know, he's basically uh, holds all the cards. Can the U.S., though, afford to exclude Canada from, from any kind of a deal, Conrad? It can afford to, uh, certainly. I, I mean, Trade with Canada is, uh, I think, something on the order of two percent of American GDP, which is growing at the rate of over four percent a year. But it, it, it so it, I mean, in the sense of can literally can it afford it? Yes, it can. But it would be unwise. It would be unjust. And and and. Um, Canada, I mean, most Canadians have certain reservations about the U.S. in political and sociological terms, but are, are well disposed to it as a country. And Canada as a government is no, is no bother to the United States. And they, they wish all of the other 197 countries were agreeable and equitable as we are. And in fairness, Trump has always said that. I mean, I happen to see a, <clears throat> just a clip of his remarks uh, to, to the party faithful out in Evanston, uh, Indiana last night, and um, and he, and he he got a great hand of applause for Canada. He said, "Look, we all love Canada, don't we?" And the people all cheered. I mean, there's a, there there is basic goodwill between the countries and the governments of the countries, but uh, we don't know, or maybe you do, John, but I don't know to what extent um, uh, these negotiations were knocked off track by Justin and Christia Freeland's. Uh, insistence on gender rights and environmental questions that have nothing to do with trade and just irritated the Americans. I mean, the, the fact is the the, co- uh, the coefficient of forces between the correlation of forces between the United States and Canada economic forces is very one-sided on their side. In addition to having uh, 11, 12 times as large an economy, they they also, actually more than that, about 14 times as large an economy, they, they uh, they have three times the rate of economic growth right now. So, uh, you know, you've, whether we like it or not, we'd want to deal with them, and we've got to, we've got to do the best we can with the cards we have. And we certainly can't have our roses, our noses rubbed in the, in the, in, in the ground. But, you know, we've got to deal with them. Yeah. And, and uh, provoking Donald Trump is not, it's just not a smart move. Well, you know, and on that point, lastly, uh, you know, because Trump has been reputed to be thin-skinned. You know him certainly better than most. But in the case of John McCain, do you think Donald Trump could have been more gracious in the end? Um, there was bad blood between those two for 20 years. Uh, McCain, uh, they, they, Trump was exactly the kind of person McCain disliked, and he always did dislike him. And uh, and I think Trump made a, a mistake, and I think, while well, he uh, wouldn't volunteer this publicly, I suspect that Privately, he knows that he made a mistake when he made that comment about, yes, he was a hero, but he was chiefly a hero because of his performance as a prisoner, which happens to be true. But in fact, anyone who serves in a combat role and you know flies jet fighters, uh, fighter bombers out over North Vietnam, having SAM missiles fired at him and so on, which are you know the size of telephone poles and they're moving fast, and one of them brought him down. Uh, any of those people is, is a hero, in my opinion, and Trump shouldn't have said that. But 
McCain said a lot of completely outrageous and uncalled for things about him, too. And I, I think on this occasion, I do not blame Trump. I blame him for that one comment. And I, and I blame McCain for being uh, quite vindictive at times, including when he sabotaged his own party's uh, health care bill, which his best friend in the Senate, Lindsey Graham, was helping to sponsor. And he did it. I, I, th- I mean, we're all mind readers. We're all unlicensed psychiatrists. But I think, obviously, there was an element of vengeance in that. But, uh, but uh, and, he, and he accused Trump of being elected in Arizona when they were on the ballot together by, by, as he put it, the crazies. Well, you know, most of the same people voted for McCain, and it was an inelegant thing to say about a large block of your own state's voters. So it's not all on one side, but and on this day, uh, McCain made it clear he didn't want Trump at his funeral. I thought Trump was right in the statement he made. He condoled with the family and, and saluted McCain's memory, tersely but fairly. And I, I wouldn't fault him there. I think if he'd if he'd gone any further, people would see it as um, a false and a sort of smarmy attempt to exploit the prestige of, a, of an eminent deceased senator and, and retired um, military aviator. Mm. Uh, but but I, I, on the whole record of the thing, I, it was not. It was it was it was one of the worst miscues verbally Trump has made in his career, and he certainly made his share. All right, there you go. Uh, Conrad, it's always great to uh, have you drop in on the show and uh, wish you a great long holiday weekend, and we'll talk again next Friday. Thanks so much, John. Same to you and, and your listeners. Thank you for that. Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian.